Hey friends, welcome to another episode of The Great Day Podcast. I'm your host and friend, Mayor K. And today, we're sitting with Rabbi Shays Taub, author of God of Our Understanding, Jewish Spirituality and Recovery from Addiction. I read this book, and it is amazing. I realize you don't need to be Jewish or an addict to appreciate the wisdom one finds in this book. Really, I highly recommend it. Rabbi Shays Taub is a thought leader. He's a rabbi and a compassionate human being who has a beautiful and simple way of being, which I have the privilege to share with you today in this podcast. We cover a range of topics. It is truly beautiful. The, the, the hour just flew by. And without further ado, here we are with Rabbi Shays Taub. You know, I'm just like getting into it. You know, do you have any? Do you have any exercises before? Or how do you get into it? I think we should start prayer. Oh wow, we can start this podcast with a prayer. Yeah. Okay, let's do that. Yeah. Lead away, Rabbi. Lead away. Let's do it together. Together? Yeah. Okay. Hashem direct us, guide us. Hashem direct us, guide us. To uh, have a productive conversation that should be of benefit to each other and to at least a third person and hopefully many more. To each other and third person, many more. Amen. Yeah, All right, I love that. Ooh. That's spontaneous prayer. That's real prayer, by the way. I love it. Do you find yourself stopping during the day and just praying? All the time. All in the your time. own words? How I survive, yeah. I mean, not out loud, but in, in my head, yeah. Constant dialogue. Wow, so you don't yeah. believe in the sense of like having to like... I mean, there's something to say about prayer books with oh, words. Oh, yeah, yeah, we do, I do that too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, regular uh, organized religion, yeah, three times a day. Wow. But yeah. this practice of praying on your own, and was that something that you were brought up with or something you just discovered um, that worked for you later in life? You want to know something? Okay. First of all, I'm like very like person, but like private person. And I like never really think about myself or talk about myself too much, but okay, I'll tell you a story. This is something I know you're good at. Story. It, it's, yeah. And it's actually, it, it's a story that I only told recently. And I guess, cause I told it recently, I'm feeling like I can, say it. I, one of my earliest memories is I was three years old and I was, I don't remember what I was upset about, but I was like beside myself with rage. And it could have been anything. It could have been the tag in a shirt. I, I really don't know what it was that set me off. And I remember standing in the, in the living room, looking out the window and uh, looking into my backyard and my mother came over and she asked me, what's wrong? Because I was visibly distraught. And uh, I said, no, she said, what can I do for you? And I said, there's nothing you can do for me. This is between me and Hashem. Wow. wow. And to her credit, my mother, may she be well, she's an educator, she's a master educator. And to her credit, you know what she did? Turned around and she left. She gave you your space. She gave me my space. I said this between me, me and Hashem, and she left me for that. So yeah, you asked me if this is something I've been doing my whole life. Yeah, I but I only realized it retroactively. I realized yeah, that that's what I've been doing. Wow, that's incredible. I I also heard recently like about one of the most like selfless ways one can show love and appreciation to somebody is to give them space. Absolutely. You know, not to like necessarily like sometimes I find myself because it, it makes me feel good to go over to somebody and to like say, hey, let me help you out. Let me get involved with your life. Let me give you my opinion. 
Right. And and sometimes that I mean I sometimes I actually tell myself this is actually my duty and I'm a good person that way. Right. How does one know when to like yeah. be aware that awareness to say like wait a second yeah this is good for them to to deal with it on their own. You know one of my favorite uh, stories about the Rebbe. What's that? So um, <clears throat> it's actually you know the Lamavitcher Rebbe sent out shlokim and it's something that's famous about the Rebbe sent out thousands of shlokim. So there was one shliach he sent to uh, New Haven, Connecticut. I'm from New Haven, Connecticut. Yeah, I went to his school. So, so this is a story about the school. Okay. And you don't realize you almost had a day off from school and all the days off from school. Well, I've had days off from school, but... No, all the days. All the days off from school. Because okay. in the summer of 1973, Rabbi Hecht wrote a letter to the Rebbe saying he's done. He can't go on. He cannot manage anymore. And uh, in fact, later on, I found out it wasn't a letter. It was a whole parcel. It had all the keys to the building. Basically, it wasn't a joke. He was saying, I'm done. I can't, I can't take it. Too much pressure, too much whatever was going on. I'm done. Wow. So the Rebbe's response to Rabbi Hecht is printed in something called the Igris, the Igris Kodesh, which is... All the letters compiled of the Rebbe. Over the, the years, years, exactly. Yeah. The Rebbe answered thousands and thousands of, of letters, and some of them are published. So the printed answer, you don't see the, the letter that Rabbi Hecht wrote to the Rebbe, you see the Rebbe's answer. The Rebbe writes to him, basically, first he quotes a scriptural verse from the prophets. He says, Before they call out, and I have already replied. It's Hashem saying, before you even prayed your prayer, I, I answered your prayer. And he says, everything's been taken care of. Situation is you know, situation is taken care of because Moshe Yitzchok Hecht has been sent to Connecticut. Whoa. Now who's writing? Moshe Yitzchok Hecht is writing to the Rebbe saying, I got to leave Connecticut. I can't take it. Right. And the Rebbe is saying, I fixed your problem. Problem's fixed already because I sent Moshe Yitzchok Hecht to New Haven, Connecticut. Wow. And the letter continues. It says, but the problem seems to me, seems to me to be that he does not know. He, the Rebbe will write in third person, which is like more polite. He means the person he's writing to. Mm -hmm. The problem is that he doesn't know Moshe Yitzchak Hecht and the powers he possesses. Therefore, my recommendation to him is he, sh he should get to know him. And when he does, all of his problems will disappear. Wow. That reminds me of a story. I was just actually recent, recently reading the book Posit Positivity Bias by Rabbi Mendel Kalmason. Yes. And excellent uh, thought leader. Fantastic. Young rabbi, young rabbi, good friend of mine. Likewise, my cousin yes. grew up with him in New Haven, Connecticut as well. We went to the same school. He's a couple of grades older than me. But also, I just read recently a similar story with Rabbi Weinreb, who reaches out to the Rebbe, who also says, um, he didn't want to say his name. The secretary picked up the phone. He said, right. Rabbi, I need some help, some guidance. And, the, and he hears the Rebbe in the background saying, speak to this Rabbi Weinreb. And he says, blurts out, right. I am he. Right. And he says, well, sometimes a person needs to speak to himself. Right. I'm all up in Reb to Zich. Sometimes you have to speak to yourself. Right. I heard that story straight from Reb Tzvi Hershim. Yeah, Did you? Yeah. Oh, wow. We were in South Africa together, one Gimel Thomas, which is the Rebbe's yard site. So I was, I, was, I was sitting there in Cape Town, and Gimel Thomas said, Reb Hershim, you got to tell me the story. And he knew which story, I mean. Yeah. He told me the whole story. And yeah, and, and, but that's the answer to your question about giving people space. The Rebbe was famous for his love of Jews. I mean, that's why he sent Shluchim to go serve the Jewish community and really serve the whole world. Just a lover of the Jewish people and a lover of humanity. Mm -hmm. So you think about all oh, that love, that abundant love, that love, right? You want to go out and you want to help everyone. Yeah. But then to have the poise when one of your own children is saying, Tati, let me come home. And he says, no, 
I'm not going to let you run home because that would be the easy thing. And maybe even I want you to come home, but I'd be robbing the world of the gift that you have to contribute. And I'd be robbing you of your destiny if I would allow you to come home. So no, you're staying there on the front lines and you're gonna you're gonna stick it out. You stick it out, right. Yeah. And I mean that that's a thing. Like I feel like um I know for myself it's it's a practice that I'm right now getting reintroduced to myself, my identity, who I am, spending time with self. Um and I know within like I've been doing a lot of reading with Rabbi Ari Kaplan, rediscovering how much meditation has to do with Judaism. Oh yeah. And um I feel like maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like a lot of that practice has been maybe stolen from us, or we're told that it's a lot of innocent practice, or to spend time with self, to meditate, to really, I mean, the Shona Esrei was developed as a meditation, right. from my understanding yeah. from, his, from his teaching, where happened. So like, but it's, I, and I know for myself, I just read through it. It's, it was never taught to me in that sort of way. Do you think that practice, how do you think that was lost? And why are we so, on, on top of that, why, did, why are we so uncomfortable um, to be alone with ourselves? Yeah, wow. A few questions there. Okay, yeah. yeah. I think one is when did when did Judaism sort of uh, lose the practice of meditation? Let's yeah. start with that. I mean, the meditative tradition or contemplative tradition was always preserved, especially um, the, the Hasidic tradition. But I mean, your question is more: when did it become something that the, the average person didn't feel was part of their life? And, and I don't know, maybe that's a question for a historian, when that happened, how it happened. Um, but the fact is the fact, what you're observing in your own life and... Well, and, I guess yeah. I'm saying, like, I don't find, like, I, I feel like, I mean, one way of finding oneself, I feel like, is by stopping, pausing, breathing, and like, and, and in other words, right. meditating. Like, breathing is so important. Breathing is so important. You don't breathe. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing else works. I love, I mean, I actually love how you said <clears throat> in one of your, <clears throat> excuse me. I love how you said. I love how you once said in one of your in your own words, like how you took the serenity prayer and you just oh, shut it down to like you abbreviated serenity. Prayer. <sighs> yeah, <laughs> just like you don't have to say all the words. If you don't know the words, it's fine. Yeah. Just taking a breath and like <sighs> letting it all go. It's a Yiddish kraft. A kraft is a good Yiddish word. Right? A sigh. Exactly. A sigh. But when the bubby and the kid, you know, when she was like this doing it, ah, yeah. that was. By the way, weird. that's also an example of giving that space, not jumping in there to solve the problem, not solutionizing. I don't know. You know, it's not that I don't care. I do care. But what do you want me to do? Uh, so a sigh is a very, it's like a very humble thing. It shows that I care, but it's like, I'm not going to jump in there and pretend that I can fix it. Mm -hmm. So what can I do? I can just let it go. Yeah. Not to be translated of giving up per se. No, not, God forbid. We don't mm -hmm. give up. I mean, right. Jewish people are very hopeful and very, very idealistic. But at the same time, there's a certain humility of, you know, I sometimes, depends who you are and what kind of life you have, but there are moments that are overwhelming. What are you supposed to do in overwhelming moments? You don't lose hope. But at the same time, there's a certain humility of saying, I can't handle this right now. Okay, now I have some options. I can be in denial, I can pretend it's not going on. Um, I can numb myself to it, I can find distractions, right? That's another, that's another way of pretending that it's, it's not going on. I can fight it. I can yell at it. Rage is also rage is the deepest distraction when I'm in, I'm in, I'm in conflict. I'm in conflict with reality. Right? And then there's just like, okay, this is unpleasant. This is scary. This is painful. But 
This is what's going on in the moment, and I'm just going to show up for it. So accept it. Accept the reality. Accept the reality and, and show up for it and, and be present for it. And, 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 and yeah, so there's a, there's a humility to it, but not a loss of hope at all. How do you show up to it and yet also refrain from taking control of the situation or trying to control the situation? Yeah. Well, see, there's, there's a saying in the, in the Talmud. To, I'll tell you in Hebrew and then translate it. Sure. This is a one-liner. Everything's in the hands of heaven, except for one's awe of heaven. So it's a very black and white statement. Everything, the way that God is running the world, it's not your business. God runs the world. You have no control over that. Except for one's awe of heaven. How you feel about the job that God is doing running the world. So he's running the world. You have no control over that but you can control your reaction to it, how you feel about the job that he's doing running the world. So the reaction of what's taking place, the that's your control. to the reality. Sort of how like Viktor Frankl talks about yes, in his book, yes, how like absolutely. All, this tra- all this terrible things are happening to right. people in the camps, but he didn't lose hope because he saw at times how people, you know, express themselves, how they showed kindness to one another, how they showed up to the situation. There's a great Hasidic story, by the way, that's very parallel to this concept of, you know, Frankl's idea, I cannot control the situation around me, but, I, I, but I'm still the master of my, my own choices because I'm choosing the meaning to give to it. I'm choosing my behaviors to the extent that I'm, that I'm able to. There's a Hasidic story about a great chassid, I'm sure you know, Reb Mendel Futavas. Sure, yeah, right? of course, yeah. So he was, uh, you know, long story how he ended up in a, in a work camp. He was actually helping Jews to escape from Soviet Russia, yeah, the whole thing with false passports. I mean, I think... You know, right, so yeah, yeah, of course. Mate. You know the whole story. Yeah, totally, but for those who don't know. But, I mean, you could tell. You don't, don't your family was involved in the... Oh, in, in the... In, I mean, I, I have similar stories in the sense, I, I mean, there's one... Not talking about the footpaths, but like a Sino, my great great grandmother with the Rebbe's mother. That, right. That, yeah. was, that was part of that same underground railroad, so to speak. Okay, fair from, enough. Le, from Lemberg, that was the last stop on the train to get to Poland. And they ran a whole operation of how to get right Polish passports. That was the so basically he was making false Polish passports because that was your way to get out. Yeah, to get out. Of, right. Of okay. Russia, sure. Right. So that's what he got busted for. They sent him to the to the work camp. <clears throat> so, anyways, in the work camp, there were political prisoners like Reb Mendel and um, some intellectuals. The communists were very suspicious of intellectuals. Because oh, if you think for yourself, it's a, it's a problem. You got to follow the rules. You know what I mean? They used to say a joke that why do KGB units work with three? They have three guys in a KGB unit because you need one who knows how to write, you need one who knows how to read, and you need a third one to keep his eye on the two intellectuals. Okay? They're very, they're, right. People can think for themselves. It's very dangerous. So there was a professor there in the work camp with Reb Mendel, and. I don't know what he was a professor of, but he was a professor. And while he was in the work camp, he was sort of continuing to, you know, make observations. So he says to Mendel, he says, look, and by the way, Mendel was in, in, in Siberia in the, in, the, in the 60s. So I don't know if man's search for meaning reached the Soviet Union by that time. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if this professor had knowledge of Frankel's work, but you'll, you'll hear the strong parallel. So the, the professor says to Mendel, he says, listen, I'm watching and I see young men, relatively healthy, they don't die from disease or starvation. Um, but in the morning, they lose the will to get up off the cot when we go out for our day of slave labor. And when we come back, they're dead. And I think it's because they gave up on life. 
He says, but you, I see that you're very, you have this certain joie de vivre, this like. This fire. Yeah. yeah. And it, you inspire others. And I'm just trying to work out the difference. So the Mendel says, listen, let me tell you about these guys you're looking at. Most of these guys in prison with us, who are they? They're not political prisoners. They're low lives. They're, they're, they're like career criminals. Ethnically speaking, they're Cossacks. Who are the Cossacks? I mean, the Jews know the Cossacks. You know, the pogroms, the, the raids, those were the Cossacks. You know, these are real, not nice people. Right. He says, for a Cossack, what's life? Life is three things. Life is three things for a Cossack. Your horse, your rifle, and your bottle of vodka. That's life. Now, when the Cossack gets sent to prison, he loses those, those three things that are life. He loses the horse, he loses the rifle, he loses the bottle of vodka. Well, if those three things are life, and he just lost those three things, so he lost his life, so it's only a matter of time before the body gets the memo from the brain that you're dead already. And that's when you see them fail to get up off the cot in the morning. And by the time we get back, they're dead. He says, but me, what's life? Life is you try your best to serve your maker. That's it. So for instance, back at home, I'd be in my office, you know, making the fake, the fake passports. And uh, you're sitting in the office, you see the sun is going down. Okay, well, there's three prayers, we mentioned earlier, three prayers a day, right? So afternoon prayer, you have to pray before sundown. Time to pray, okay? Afternoon prayer. And so you get up from your desk and you go to go to a synagogue and, and you pray. He says, well, it's not so different here. We're out there chopping wood. They were chopping wood. He says, uh, you see the sun going down. It's time to stop and pray. Now, you can't stop because they'll shoot you in the head if you stop. There's no shul to go to. Sure. But while you're chopping wood, you can silently pray the afternoon prayer. And in fact, he says, when I'm out there doing that, I think to myself, you know, back at home, I'm, I'm praying in a synagogue with, with, with many other Jews. He says, but here I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle of Siberia, and I'm praying the afternoon prayer while I'm working. And I think to myself, wow, in all the years since God created this earth, I bet you no one said his praises while standing on this exact spot. What an opportunity I have. He says, so you see, they didn't really take anything from me. But I said, no, the man didn't see his wife and children for 14 years. He says, they didn't take anything from me because life is you do your best to try to serve your maker. It's what I tried to do back home. It's what I try to do over here. And in some ways, it's even better. Wow. And that's, and that's, and I mean, that's, that's an incredible testament to his way of looking at life, his positivity, and his, and his, and his strength and connection to a, to a higher power, to God. I want to bring back the idea, though, you were, you were talking about earlier about how, you know, what we have control over is our emotions and how we react to situations. Everything else is up in heaven. God controls mm -hmm. that. That's something greater and a great answer to someone who believes in God. Mm. But what about when you pull that rug out from under them and there's like, it's all chaos? Mm. Yeah. Well, life can be chaotic. And, and, and I guess the question is, whether or not we believe that there's supposed to be any underlying meaning behind the chaos. There's no difference between a person of faith and a person without faith as far as looking at the world and saying that crazy things happen, overwhelming things happen. Um, faith won't, I mean, that's not faith, that's denial. You know, somebody wants it just mm -hmm. as a parenthetical statement but somebody once asked me he says how do you know and he was asking sincerely he, he said how do you know the difference between fantasy and faith that was a good question yeah 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 right so i told him i'll tell you from me 
Fantasy is an idea that I cling to in order to avoid facing reality. Faith is an idea that I cling to in order to have the courage to face reality. Mm. <laughs> Almost identical, but then... Right. Just exact opposites. Just opposites, exactly. Both dealing with so reality. If it ones... puts you squarely in the here and now, if it gives you the courage to go through the pain and to show up for right now, that's faith. If it makes you reality avoidant, that's fantasy. Would you say then, could someone with faith be an addict? Is, is, does an addiction come into the play when someone chooses the fantasy and then they just try to fill it with something else? Or can someone have faith and also be an, and have, and be an addict? Right. Well, first of all, let's, let's explain that. Let's unpack that a little bit because we're talking in code. Because okay. you're, you're saying very aptly that what is an addict? An addict is I'm not comfortable with reality as it is unadorned. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to embellish it. Some people like to go up. Some people like to go down. But they don't want to be here. Right. right? Correct. Right. Okay. In this present moment, yeah. Right. Okay. Numb me. Right. Right. Numb. Or, or, or yeah, or, right. Or right. The, uh, the opposite. Sure. Right. And it could be through a chemical. It could be through a behavior. But the point is... Reality isn't cutting it, and I don't want to feel what I would naturally be feeling. So I'm going to, you yeah. know, I have my medicine for that. Yes. Right. So basically, you know, you're, you're using addiction synonymously with, like, reality avoidance, which I think is a fantastic way of using it. It's a good functional uh, definition. I mean, again, this could be from, as something from, like, from drugs, alcohol, um, it doesn't sex, or, or even the phone, right? It I mean, matter. right, just yeah. swiping, right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, <laughs> I'll tell you once, I, 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 I spoke in a religious <laughs> setting. Jewish know. religious? Or yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Jewish okay. religious, yeah. And I, I don't know how many of uh, viewers, listeners will understand the nuances between the different communities within the Jewish religious community. I mean, there's... there's different movements. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I, 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 I was once speaking in a particular locale. And uh, anyways, they were asking me, what's an addiction? What's an addiction? Is it, is it, is it, is it uh, drugs? Is it, is it, is it, is it uh, pornography? Is it uh, technology? Is it... I said, you don't understand. It's not a thing. It's not a thing. It's, 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 a, it's a state of being. And you're just using that. The thing is almost incidental. It, 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 it's almost irrelevant what you're using to check out of reality. I said, don't you understand? Sitting and learning a page of Talmud can be an addiction. Wow. If you're using it to hide from reality. I said, and I'll tell you something even more. You could use it to hide from God. Oh, they didn't like that. Because oh. to them, that's the ultimate connection. Right. And I'm saying, no, but you could use that in a selfish way. That has nothing to do with God. It's your way of numbing and, and detaching and and you know, put yourself in that cocoon and not dealing with reality, not dealing with reality as God is creating it. Religion and Torah study can be an addiction. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and by that, and I don't mean that in a positive way. Right, right. right. I mean, you can use religious ritual and behaviors to disconnect yourself from God. Mm -hmm. Right. Because it's not what it is, it's how you're using it. And if you really think about it, like that's the worst misappropriation there could ever be. Something that's designed 
specifically for making connections with God and you're using it to disconnect from God. And you don't even think you're doing it because you think you're doing something holy. Right. So everybody has their tool on how they process that. So to go back a little bit then, what leads somebody, you know, to addiction? I mean, and, and what yeah. are the signs of that if someone is, you know, going to it? That's, is this something you're born with? Uh, you know, the, the jury's out on that. We don't know if it's nature, if it's nurture, or if okay. a combination of the two. Um, but, and you also have to define what it means because, you know, the, the, the AMA has their definition, which is more physiological. It's more, I would say, it's more chemical dependence, which is very different than addiction. Um, but as we know, like, I mean, from, from understanding, I, I mean, I read through your book, Out of Understanding, um, there's a kind of chemical dependency. However, there's also like the spiritual malady, right? right there's like right, disconnect right, to right, a higher power, something right, higher than self right. that we're trying to fill up. I mean, the, 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 the question is always, how can there be a person who has a month, a year, five years of clean time, meaning so abstinent from their, their drug of choice, and then there's relapse. So it's clearly not a, entirely a chemical issue, right? There's something else yeah, right, brewing here, right? There's, there's a, a joke about uh, a guy walks into a doctor's office and he says, can you help me? I'm a moth. And he says, you understand that I'm a dentist? He says, yes. So why'd you come in here? He said, because your light was on. Is it like there's a moth? Is a right, moth. you can't get distracted. Hilarious joke. Right. Anyway, <laughs> there's someone out there who's like, nah, it's good. It's One good. person is rolling. Someone's okay. rolling. A they're playing it. They're playing it. Actual laughing out loud. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Winding it so, now. Okay. Let's <laughs> do it again. Um, what is it? You know, that draws the person like a moth to the flame. Back to it. You know, when it's not the chemical issue, it's not the physiological issue. What is there going on inside internally? So, uh, I mean, you want to discuss this for a while? I mean, it's a, yeah, I, like I, the 30 second version or the five minute version. You know, I think, I think a lot of people would be interested, um, to knowing just a bit more if there's something in between, but we're, we're three free and a half minute. Yeah, we can go three and a half minutes. See what three and a half minute version. So when I was writing my book, uh, God of our understanding. Yeah. Love that book. Um, thank you. Yeah. yeah. I read it twice. Really? Yeah. I, you know, it's amazing what a book does. You write a book, you put it out. And you don't know what happens, mm. but I, it was ten years ago it came out. That, that that, that's yeah. We are we are filming in a, in a gallery near the street, so there's going to be noises. Yeah. Okay. So you write a book, you put it out there. You don't know what happens with it. It was ten years ago that I put it out, and you know people will still come over to me and tell me how they connected to that. And do you feel like I mean I know we're just we're gonna get back to what we're talking about here, but um, people who aren't necessarily addicts, I mean yes, read it. Yes. I think there's something there that talks about just life in general, yes. how to show up to life. Yes. Right? In the intro I say there's an old Yiddish saying that the Jews are just like everybody else, only more so. Right? <laughs> right. I say and and, and a, to a certain extent addiction is human nature, only more so. <laughs> so it's sort of a study you know What do you mean even more so? You know in Judaism, a lot of times we'll study exaggerated cases. Like if you study Talmud, mm -hmm. some of the cases, like, well, that would be absurd. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the point is not whether it would happen. The point is sometimes you take an exaggerated scenario, hypothetical, in order to see how a legal principle operates. And then from there, you have a precedent you can extrapolate to, to other cases. Sure. So sometimes you study extremes. 
what what is human nature? I mean, I would say the human condition, you know, what is the human condition? It's that struggle between, on one hand, we're nothing. What are we? We're nothing. On the other hand, I'm a something. I was put here. I have a purpose. That, you know, grappling with making peace with the ego, you know, that the ego shouldn't destroy me. That the ego, it's funny because the ego is me, so I shouldn't destroy myself, Mm -hmm. right? And that's the human condition, and that's addiction, essentially, because we were talking about before, you know, using the addiction to, to check out of reality. What it really means is my addiction is my anti-me medication. I don't want to be me. Mm-hmm. I don't want to have to be in the, who I am in this moment, am in this and moment accepting the life that I'm feeling I what I'm feeling, having the life that I have. Yeah. And, you know, when I, when I do this... Then, you know, an alternate universe, right? Then it's, yeah, then I don't have to be me. Right. Yeah. So when you, when it comes down, so let's go back because I'll start getting carried away. Let's go back just quickly to like, we're discussing about, you know, chicken or the egg. Right. And and when it comes to addiction. Yeah. I once heard a guy say, great line. He says, I've been an addict looking for a drug my whole life. (laughs) That would pretty much imply that it's. You know, which is it, the which chicken? Yeah, right. which comes first, right? right. Yeah. So, um, what I was telling you about ten years ago when I when I wrote the book, so there was a story that I felt needed to be told that was not well enough known, um, and that's the story of how the spiritual model for addiction actually has its roots in medicine and psychiatry. The story is. There was uh, a guy named Roland Hazard, not a well-known figure in history. He wasn't a famous person. I've never heard of him. Yeah, no, nobody's heard of him. Um, but he was this, what we call today, uh, white, privileged, New England wasp. I don't know if they still use that term, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, right? And, uh, and he was a big drunk. And he was traveling around the world, you know, getting drunk on mommy and daddy's money. And uh, they get sick of it, and they told him, you, you can't do this anymore. So they sent him to rehab, but they didn't have rehabs. So then where did they send him? They sent him to the best psychiatrist in the world. They're the two best psychiatrists in the world. Who are the two best in the 1930s? Sigmund Freud. Freud, sure. Carl Jung. Mm-hmm. So they sent him to Jung. Why they sent him to Jung? I don't know. But if, we, if they didn't send him to Jung, then we wouldn't have this they story. Start, okay. So they sent him to Switzerland, to, to, to Jung. And Jung treated him for a year. And he, and he dismissed him. He was drunk before he got on the boat. So he comes back to Jung. He says, you treated me for a year, and I, I'm drunk before I got on the boat. So he says, yeah, well, I got to tell you, I basically never see alcoholics like you recover. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right. Here's the truth. <laughs> he says, but I'll tell you something. Uh, throughout history, there are like isolated incidents, which are phenomena. A phenomenon is something that we know happens. We're not sure why it happens what the mechanics are. He says, uh, but I have a theory what the underlying mechanics may be. He says, I, I, I believe that all of these seemingly spontaneous cases of, of recovery, when they do happen in the rare occasions that they occur, were precipitated by, and he uses the term, vital spiritual experience. So they had this spiritual awakening and then it's- Yeah, I mean, it's he used the them. vital spiritual experience. Vital meaning something living, alive, experience something that you 
It's not just something, an insight, an idea. It's something you've lived, something powerful, an okay. incident. Uh, he says that these vital spiritual experiences, they cause rearrangements of uh, ideas, emotions, and attitudes. I always love that, by the way, when he says ideas, emotions, emotions and attitudes. Because, yeah. you know, a little chassidus, mm. right? So the koiches nefesh, the ten soul powers, what do you have? You have chabad, which is ideas. Sure. Chagas, which is emotions. And nehim, which is attitudes. Right. So he, he basically now avoiding the Hasidic anatomy of the soul. Right. 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 So he says so that all gets flipped around because there's the power of that vital spiritual experience. Right? Yes, yes. So he says, I was trying to induce one of those in you, but I failed. Hence, he got back, yeah, back exactly. to Exactly. So he says, so my best recommendation to you is to go somewhere where you think you might get a final spiritual experience. So he comes back to uh, the States and he goes to New York and he finds these guys who are, they're, they're actually called the Oxford Group. And they're trying to practice first century Christianity. I Meaning Christianity as it was in its back in the heyday, right? And when it just started, right. I have a friend, Father Tom, who's a Jesuit uh, priest. I joke with him, and I say they were going back. They should have gone back one more century, <laughs> <laughs> going back to Judaism. Yeah. Right? Okay. Anyways, but they're trying to practice what they understood to be basic Christianity, and it was really basic stuff like restitutions for wrongs done, making uh, an assessment of self, making amends. Meditation. Um, it was simple spiritual stuff, and uh, he, he fell in with them, and he had a, he had a vital spiritual experience. So, and then his his obsession with alcohol was removed. Uh, it wasn't that he wanted to drink, but now he had the strength to overcome. He didn't have the need to drink anymore. Whatever it was, that the uncomfortability or the bore, it was it, yeah, it just that, wasn't it wasn't there anymore. Wasn't there right? Anymore. So you, you, you don't have to take medicine to treat a condition that you no longer suffer from. Right. And I think this is important to pause right now and to say, not necessarily does this story relate to just alcoholism, but to any addiction. Yeah, for sure, it happens to be with this happens person. To me, that's how it happened. In okay, I just want to bring that point out. Yeah, yeah. it's a paradigm. Yeah, it's, sure. Yeah, for sure. It As applied to anything. So um, they had a rule that whatever you have spiritually, you have to give away. You can't keep it unless you give it away. In your book, you talk to you have that story with with God, right? This man, he talks about oh, God and says, "Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll tell that at the end." Okay, okay, that's it's, one of my favorite parables. Okay, beautiful parable. I feel like we have to talk about it. Could we brought it up already? So, just in the short of it, do you want to say it? Has to be done right. And yes, remind me right. later. Okay, fine. We'll go back to this. All right. So keep the browser tab open. This is this is this is the key of a podcast interview. You have yeah. to come bring it back. So, okay. Yeah. Oof. So. The uh, the Oxford group, they, you had to share your your spiritual experience. So they told him, "Look, you find other guys like you, and you know, help them." So he was looking for another drunk. So he knew a guy named Edwin Thatcher, who was also white privileged. Margaret's cousin family. No, I never. Maybe. Anyways, um, you know, people didn't really have a lot of. They didn't travel between social scenes very much back then. So it was just a, another guy like him from New England, from a wasp family. And basically, what happened is Edwin Thatcher got picked up on like a drunken disorderly. Roland was friends with the son of the judge, and he convinced him, you know, give him to me, and I'll I'll take care. So he did. Anyway, so then, then, then they told uh, Edwin, they called him Abby. They told Abby, 
okay, now you got to find the guy. So he's like, okay, I got to find a drunk. He's like, well, biggest drunk I know is a guy I was in World War I with named uh, Bill Wilson, who lives in Brooklyn on Clinton Street. So let me, let me go, you know. Mm, Bill right, W. Right, Bill W, right. Yeah. So he goes to him and he's like, I'm sober. He's like, how, how do you get sober? He's like, I would, I would love to get sober, right? So, uh, I mean, Bill, by that time, he wasn't drinking for fun. It wasn't like, oh, no, party. it was pain. He was, was serious stuff. Yeah, like, yeah, it was an issue. I would love to be sober. I mean, that's not an option, right? It's not, it's not even, there's no way to do it. He said, no, you can do it. I did it. How'd you do it? He says, I found God. He says, yeah, I get out of here. Right. He says, I'm not preaching religion. It's any conception of God that you want. But the point is, you have to surrender. You have to have that higher power in your life. Somebody's sitting around and they're like, hey, you know how like our whole basic idea is based on Carl Jung? Did anyone ever tell him? I'm like, no, nobody ever did. Right, went back to him. <laughs> so in, 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 in 1961, Bill W. writes a letter to Carl Jung. He's like, hey, you had this patient named Roland. And then Roland met, met uh, the, the Abby and Abby met me yeah. and I met Bob. And the, He's like, basically, we started this thing. He says, your, your theory, imagine a man of science being told, you had a theory, and we tested it on a, on a sample size of a million people, and it worked. And it's working. Right. Exactly. You're the right. father of this. Oh, of this you of didn't this even know. Exactly. Cure, yeah. So he writes in the letter. It's a, he writes a, in English. It's a whole story about how I found the letter, because Jung's English letters. Anyways, in the end, I found they were, they're, they're, they're owned by Princeton University. It's a whole story about that. Anyways, okay, let's sign up. Let's sign up. Yeah, yeah. Right. Point is... Jung writes back a letter in English. And it's a one-page letter, but he says, he's like, yeah, I remember Roland. Like, I know who you're talking about. And I remember the conversation you're talking about. He says, I want you to know, I almost didn't have that conversation with him because I was sick of being scrutinized for talking spirituality. Oh. He says, I had a theory. Right. But and this is a scientist, right? This is yeah, he's like, a, so he's sort of like the opposite, medicine, so to speak. Right, right. So he's like, I, I, I was tired of being harassed and scrutinized. For, so I almost didn't tell him. He says, but that, yes, that was my theory and is my theory of, of, of alcoholism. He says, the patient's craving for alcohol was a lower level manifestation of man's thirst for union with God. Wow, like that sentence is so, yeah. yeah. And he's like, that's it. You're 100% right. And I'm glad that he conveyed that to you. Goes, yeah, that's what it is. And then there's a little asterisk. He writes it in. The letter's typed, but that there's a little asterisk right there and the, on the bottom of the page, a little footnote. And it says, I'll tell you in Hebrew because yeah. you'll know. The translators will afterwards. Mm. As the deer is panting thirstily by the water brook, so does my soul thirst for you, O God. So basically, Carl Jung's formulation of alcoholism, of addiction, is, like you said, patients' thirst, uh, craving for alcohol is a lower level manifestation of man's thirst for union with God. It's like this thirsty deer panting by the water brook. My soul is thirsting for God. I'm trying to quench that thirst with substitutes that, that simulate a spiritual See, right. What is a spiritual experience? Cause we were talking about it before. Let's 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 tie it back in. We were talking about it before about showing up for the moment, being reality, being, being, being okay with being okay with who you are. Yeah. I, hey, I'm good. Yeah, you're good. If I'm That's... spiritual, 
right? I'm not judging you. Right. You're not less than. I'm not less than. The moment's not less than. Right. Yeah, I just shared a, a quote on, on my Instagram called um, saying, um, doubting yourself is doubting your creator. Yeah, exactly. That's, that, yeah, because if I'm spiritual, then everything is is God talking to me. How could it be? How can it be doubt? How can anything be less than? How can this moment not be a good moment? It, even if it's a painful moment, but yes, you know, it's still it's in the makeup of, yeah. of, of of creation and reality, and it's all part of the flow. It's all so that's spirituality. Okay, now what's being numbed by your drug of choice? It's also I can deal with stuff and show up for it and talk to people, right? But it's not really showing up for it. It's not being present. You're not lucid. Mm-hmm. Right. So then my question is, then how is it that they say rabbis or priests or people who are dedicating their lives to spirituality find themselves in this predicament? Yeah, because it's one thing to have knowledge and then there's another thing to really... They're living life with it. I mean, but also make with the meaning or the attention behind it. You know what? You got to go deep. And sometimes the answer is, you know, even a religious person, you got to go deeper. And you got to make it more personal. We started at the very beginning. We said our prayer, remember? And you're like, yeah. you know, do you, do, you, do you pray three times a day too? Yeah, of course you do that, right? That's the formal prayer. But then there's also the personal prayer. Right. It's got to be personal. It's got to be my God, my personal relationship with God. And and it's like, I guess the question leads is like, you know, why? I mean, I think you even said this. I, I, well, it's funny. I, I've heard it from a third party, but I think it was you who answered this person. Pretty much you were fed up by saying, this is great. I think, it, it, correct me if it is you, um, that you're just sick and tired of hearing about Jewish boys finding God in the basements of churches. Yeah. I'm not saying that they shouldn't go there if that's the only Correct. Yeah, I mean, and I to be related to church. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. We have our children in our... Jewish boys or girls. Jewish boys or girls. Yeah, yeah. In, 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 in our institutes of learning. We have them for 10 years, 15 years, whatever it is. In theory, they should have been given every tool they need to be spiritually healthy and grounded and whole. And it's heartbreaking when that's not the case. Where's that disconnect taking place? Because we're going through the yeshiva systems. We're going through the schooling. There is, I mean, it's part of the way of life. You said at the beginning, you yeah. know, we weren't taught meditation. You had to find it as an adult. Yeah, totally. I mean, and now I'm, I'm getting reintroduced to chassidus, which I know you you're, have such a love for, but I'm, I'm being retaught it. I'm like, wait a second, did I learn this? Right. Like, it was always, I guess, taught in a, <laughs> you know, like, in, like, I don't know, in a foreign type of way. It was never really brought down practically. Mm-hmm. And um, not to say that I'm not trying to throw garbage on shade on on on, on my upbringing and, and my education i, grew, I did go a lot through that process but at the, that being said you're right we have it i had it i had it um but yeah it didn't register and it's um yeah. and it's like oh i'm reopening and now i'm rediscovering for myself in my in my adulthood yeah yeah you know what king david told his son king solomon he told him said this said teachings always like use this verse no, K-N-O-W, and we got to translate that word properly because to know doesn't mean I know about something. First time in the Bible where it says somebody knew somebody, it says, Adam knew Eve, and she had a baby from that. So <laughs> be careful who you know. <laughs> so know the God of your father. That means intimate knowledge, personal knowledge. Know the God of your father, 
and then consequently serve him with a full heart. So the interesting thing is it your God or the God of your father? Well, it's mm-hmm. the God of your father. It's a tradition. It was handed down to you. You were educated in that way. But that's not enough. Then does that translate also to when a parent tells a child, this is what we do, or this is how it's been done? This is Which this, is valid, yeah. but that's not a complete answer. And that's mm-hmm. not a complete education. There is that idea of, you know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There, there, there's wisdom. It's been preserved. There's a golden chain. And you're an inheritor of that. But that's not enough. On top of it, then there has to be that personal knowledge, that intimate knowledge. Make it yours. Own it. You have to own it. And how do you own an idea? You can't just parrot back something that somebody told you and have ownership of that idea. And make it your own. What does does that mean? What does it mean to have ownership? I'll, I'll, I'll ask you an easier question. Okay. How can you tell if somebody has ownership of an idea? What's a way to test it? If, if they could teach it to somebody else. Yeah. If they yeah. could, yeah, make yeah. it their own words and right. live by it. Right. Oh, so you said... you said Two different things. things. I just said, yes. Okay. I said, so say, to, teach it to somebody else, right. but I was also... And, and, and integrity and part behind of it. teaching it to someone else, you mentioned in your own words. In your own words, right? I did say that. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Which is part of the same thing. And then, and live by it. Mm-hmm. Right? Those two things. So, yeah. If you see somebody living by an idea, it's hard to know if somebody's living, because, you know... Right. I guess it's more, right from the outside. You can't really tell rigorous honesty with right. itself. Okay. Yeah, there's a the, the famous story about when Bertrand Russell was brought up on ethics charges for uh, you know immorality when he was teaching. I think it was at Oxford, and they said to him, "So you know, Professor Russell, you, you, you're the one who teaches ethics at this, this university. Yeah, yeah, and you're now you're being brought up on ethics violations." And he says, "And at Cambridge, I taught." Geometry and nobody asked me if I was a triangle, right? Uh-huh. So yeah, okay. You can you can be an expert in something and not and not live that way, right? Yeah. Okay. But so th- that's a hard thing to tell if someone's really living a certain way. But to be able to say it over in your own words, um, what what I love to do is. No, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a story. The, the, the Rebbe's brother, Bistro Ayelay. I like where you're going, that though, because like, I, I want to get back to it. Because no, no, you know? I'm not departing from it. Okay. I heard a story. A Chassid once met him, and he said he had an incredible mind, you know, um, a genius. And they were talking about Kabbalah. And Kabbalah talks about levels of reality way beyond the physical plane, and just and there are levels and levels and levels. So they were discussing these levels. It's called Seder Ishtalshlis. And he says, it was in the middle of the night. They've been talking for hours. And at one point, Rabbi Saw, your lady says, he says, you know what? I, I got to stop talking about it because now I'm using the Zohar's terminology. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? Yeah. You're just quoting. I'm just quoting. Yeah. See, till then, what was he doing? He had his own words for everything because it was real. It was his, he owned those ideas. Mm-hmm. Now I'm quoting the Zohar. So, yeah, it's, it reminds me of the, I forgot who says a quote, but like, you know, you were born an original, don't die a copy. And I, <laughs> and I see that a lot, you know, in social media where there's all these, a lot of accounts that take place, a little account, people open up these accounts and they just like literally copy paste quotes mm-hmm. or stories or mm-hmm. videos from other people. And like, I think it's amazing the massive knowledge and sharing is awesome. But I think within that, there was like this, this, you know, this gap that takes place where people don't think for themselves or don't create for themselves or or just fall into this trap and then perhaps they 
a mirror shows up or, or like this like facade of like, okay, I'm sure all this, maybe I live my life by this, but do you really? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I, maybe a disconnect of identity and self takes place of like who you truly are and mm-hmm. you fall into that gap. And I guess rediscovery takes place within that. So, but yeah, it's I, to just echo Do you know a, a good way to keep yourself real? And grounded? And yeah. How's that? When you're sending out posts on social media, you have no idea how people are actually taking it. If you're not talking face-to-face with people and seeing if they understand what you're talking about, it's very hard to keep it real. Mm-hmm. Human interaction keeps us real. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. That's, that's the... It's, 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 it's the paradox of, 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 of building a relationship with God. On one hand, you have to say, you know what? I'm not here to impress people anymore. I don't need human validation. I, I, I've done that. It doesn't work. I'm done. It's me and God, and that's it. On the other hand, anyone who really is seriously living a spiritual life and trying to grow closer to God every day, you realize how vital it is to have that community. community, that reality check that you only get from other people. Yeah, but then, I mean, isn't, isn't it a slippery, slippery slope? Um, when we, when we, yes, it's important to be, you know, in the community and we, we all know that maybe we all don't know this, but like, um, you talk about in your book, how the opposite of addiction is, is, is connection, human connection, it's not sobriety, human connection, but validation from somebody else. I mean, I have to just say like, I, I, I may disagree with that because like, I know I suffer from that and it only gets me into trouble. You know, I, how good does a million hits on YouTube? Oh my gosh, it's a drug, right? The first time, yeah. well, I broke it down. The first time I got 10,000 hits, I was ecstatic. But then the next time I only got, you know, 10,000 hits, it wasn't it great. I was like, it should be 50,000, right? And it, it was not, it became an addiction. And so I'm, I'm only speaking, I'm speaking from my own experience of like, yeah, I mean, validation works for a certain extent until it doesn't work anymore. And then you have to fill with something else and you have to dig deeper. So. I think it's important to to separate human valida- validation to con- from the connection. It's like absolutely, yeah, two very different things. Two very different things. Because validation is something you're trying to get from outside of yourself to fill yourself, and that never works. Whatever it is, whether it's a person or it's a thing, anytime we try to take something outside of ourselves to make ourselves complete, we end up being very disappointed. Another way of saying it is looking to anything other than than God to give us what only God can give us. Because ultimately, what makes me valid? Why am I okay? Why am I worthy? Because I'm here. Yeah, I was created. I was created. God put me here. Not yeah. just I'm here. God put I'm here, me man. Me. Yeah. So I get my validation from God. When I, I try to get it from anything other than God, I'm going to be bitter, bitterly disappointed. From my own personal experience, I have a hard time connecting with God and the word God, particularly because growing up, it was thrown around so easily, God, Hashem. And like, there was just, is it a man in the sky with a long white beard? What does God look like? So are we talking about a God that's internally within me, my in, inner consciousness? Are we, I mean, are we talking about, uh, I mean, this identity of him, her that created this world, which I, yes, I believe and also have a hard time believing in, in all honesty. But like, how do you make that tangible? Like, you know, like mm-hmm. you talked about the God of our fathers or the God of my understanding. How does one go about to, to really rebuild, if they find themselves right now in this time where they were taught religion or a way of life or spirituality, but they're lost. Mm-hmm. How do you bring yourself back to your, the way of your father, the God of your fathers, so to speak? Mm-hmm. But how do you start from ground zero? Like how do you just start creating a spiritual connection with the higher power? You know, one good way to start from ground zero? Yeah. How? Completely destroy your life and hit rock bottom, rock bottom, and then you start from <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fresh 
worst way. I mean, that's crazy. To, you, to saying to really find that connection, you have to hit yeah. rock bottom. I'm not telling anyone to do it. Okay, I'm just saying the fact. It's a way. That's a way. Yeah, well, yeah, a pretty powerful way. Yeah. All right. I mean, okay. Well, that's but I mean, for someone who doesn't. But I'll tell you, there's there's another way. But okay. it's really not another. It's the same way, because the truth is, you know, there's a saying: when do you hit bottom? When you stop digging. Mm -hmm. You can quit. You can surrender anytime you want. But spiritual growth begins with surrender. It begins with ego death. They say ego is E-G-O, edging God out. Mm. Begins with ego death. Just scary. Yeah. Yeah. But it's the, it's the parable of the seed. Take a seed. You bury the seed alive. Terrifying. But the seed falls apart on the ground and becomes a tree. And from the tree grow fruits with many more seeds, which can grow generations of trees with fruits and seeds. So basically, we start off with the seed that has its identity as a seed. It's one little seed. It doesn't want to lose that identity. But if it doesn't lose that identity, it'll never become what it really is meant to be and unleash its infinite power. And they say anyone can count the seeds in an apple, but only God knows how many apples are in a seed. Mm. There are really, in theory, infinite apples in every seed, every apple seed. But the apple seed will not give off those infinite generations of fruits until it will let go of everything it's ever been. When it can do that, then it can become something completely different, incomparably greater. So spiritual growth always begins with surrender. So I was saying before, hit bottom and yeah. let your life yeah. fall apart. But if the truth is, you don't have to actually have your life fall apart. You can surrender right now. It's 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 it's, simple, it's a simple thing. It's called humility. Mm -hmm. Called letting go. Letting go. Stop taking trying to control. Stop trying to control. That's right. That's right. You just show up with humility. And just be open to the idea that there's more than just you swimming in this vast ocean alone and Yeah, and, and look for it. Look for your calling you know it's an interesting thing because when you let your sense of ego die then you really meet your true self yeah then you meet your true self which is another way of saying the soul the soul is your true self which is another way of saying your mission you know your mission sent purpose to, to, yeah you were two important days of a person's life the day they were born and the day they find out why <laughs> yeah 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 mark exactly. twain yeah 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 so okay amazing so La I, on, and to wrap, just two more things on this addiction yeah. quickly, because I know recently I had a friend, a friend, cousin, and people, I know people who've mm -hmm. overdosed in the, um, in the past. And I know uh, there's a lot of anger from the parents and from, the, yeah. from some from family members and friends towards that person. How could they do this? What's yeah. going on? And um, how would you react to that? Because I think maybe, maybe just maybe through knowledge of understanding, like it's selfish of where that person may yeah. have been to realize, you know, compassion or yeah. towards that, to that soul, to that person. Um, Cause ultimately I think it was, it's not, it's they're not, they weren't, you know, they didn't want to be in that position. They, they weren't, they, they didn't want to harm anybody Remember else. Remember what we were saying before, like by the time that Ebby came to Bill Wilson, he said, you want to quit drinking? Yeah, I'd love to quit drinking. It just can't happen. Yeah. Right. He wasn't having fun drinking anymore. It wasn't fun. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, partying. It was, it was, it was a job. Yeah. Right? Somebody, you know, sometimes you have young people and, and they're experimenting and it's fun for them. 
right? Yeah. Then you get to a point, it's not fun anymore. It's, yeah. it's, 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 it's an obligation, right? What does it really mean? It means I can't function. I can't show up. I can't do the things, you know, somebody once asked me, like, how do, you, how, do you, how do you really describe crossing that line? So I said, look, somebody goes out to the bar and he gets drunk. You know, maybe he's partying, maybe. I said, but a guy who has to drink half a bottle of whiskey in order to go to his child's fifth birthday party, mm-hmm. he's not doing it for fun anymore. Red flag. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, somebody who's to the point where, you know, I can't function. I'm in too much pain. And whether it's from trauma or, you know, there are just some people who are extremely sensitive. Yeah. They're sensitive to the Life can be trauma. I told you the very beginning, my story, I was crying when I was three years old. I told you I could have been a tag in a shirt. And I really, it really could have been a tag in a shirt. I don't know what it was. Yes. Right? Yeah. So for some people, life is traumatic. But I think you have to, to understand, you have to have compassion. Somebody who's in pain and they're doing the best they can with the tools that they currently have. And of course we pray that people find better tools. Yes, yes. But right? for some for some part of their life, whatever they're addicted to is is serving their purpose until it's not anymore. Well, yeah, and and you know that's, I also mentioned in God of our understanding, but you know the great the great misunderstanding is that for the addict the the, the, the drug of choice isn't their problem, it's their solution. Yeah. Right, right, right. First of all, I mean, that's quickly, how do you know so much about addiction? Okay. I spent a lot of time in the trenches. I mean, it was a whole divine providence story about how I started meeting one person after another person. Mm-hmm. Okay. And just fell into this amazing community of people who were really serious about God. And I was like, wow. Yeah. So I don't, I mean, I hate to say this, but I was working as a rabbi already. And I was like, I didn't see this anywhere else. The people are this real, this serious. Mm-hmm. And just fell in love with it, and yeah, took it from there. Yeah, you, I mean, your your dad's a psychologist. psychologist. Yes, your right. mom was a speech pathologist. That's right. That's true. Um, yeah. So I think you know you you end up in your line of work is you know <laughs> you know because you speak very well, you have a way of great way of of, of of communicating, and of course with I the psychology my background. Parents. My parents taught me how to how to communicate, and and my father never taught me psychology, but I learned from him certain. I never formally, people always ask me, like, you have formal, no, I do not, and I make no pretense. No formal education. No, 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 no. But, I mean, of course, I read his books, you know, lying around the house, I would, you know, certain books I still remember to this day that I really liked, like, Games People Play. That was one of his <laughs> favorite books, you know, about uh, transactional analysis. I remember reading that when I was, like, 14 years old. Like, yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. Okay, early start. Eric Byrne, right. <laughs> Anyways, but, um, you know, my father once told me, he's like, just a great line. We we're talking about before, you know, you don't control reality, right? But you got to show up for it and experience it. So he told me once, he says, I think it was like 16 years old. He says, what's the difference between a psychotic and a neurotic? Growing up in my home, I knew that was set up for a joke. So I said, I don't know, dad, what's the difference between a psychotic and a neurotic? So he says, a psychotic thinks that two plus two equals five. A neurotic knows two plus two equals four and he can't stand it. Right. That's right. right. Two plus two equals four. Oh, but it shouldn't. But it shouldn't. <laughs> exactly. right? Yeah, right? <laughs> it shouldn't be this way. Well, apparently it should. It just right. It's because yeah. it's how it all comes out. But I mean, so I mean, this background led you to, um, I guess, the choices in your life: become a rabbi, 
Um, and I mean, your dad's a psychologist, but you also have a big passion around chassidus, around around Kabbalah, this whole yeah. all these teachings, which you yeah. turn into soul words. Um, yeah, it's my new platform, newish platform. Yeah, for it's soul words. That, that whole you know how I came to that name and everything is a whole. Uh, well, first of all, well, it's very hard today to find uh, a name for a website that's not taken. Right. I mean, I love soul words. It's such yeah. a beautiful. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's such a beautiful. Yeah. Um, brand but that i mean but what's different about soul words like is what what is soul words for those who don't know and what are the topics are being discussed is it varieties is, is it about self-identity is it relationship with god that's a great you, question that's a great question so first of all soul words is basically an umbrella name for everything that i'm doing communicating spreading information spreading insight the the best that i can so it's my website my it's a, it's a whatsapp group it's mm-hmm. uh God willing, uh, programs that uh, that I'm hoping to videos. I know. Yeah, doing a lot of videos, and that's just a way of reaching people all over the world. Um, and the idea is, you know, we we're talking about before. How do you know that you own an idea, particularly an abstract idea? I mean, we didn't say that, but that was the implication. Sure. And you said when you could explain it to someone in your own words. So, to a certain extent, soul words is about me grappling with ideas that I know are important and trying to figure out why they're important, how they're important to me. And then sharing that and saying, hey, if this resonates with you, take it, you know. Is there is there a topic that you always find yourself going back to with, you know, just like, oh man, it doesn't matter how I started. Exactly, just always back at this one point or this one yeah. idea. Yeah, the theme, what is that? the theme that we keep coming back to in, in this, Oh, this is not an interview. This is podcast. A podcast. Yeah. Discussion, conversation. Two souls coming two together. Two souls coming together yeah. for the benefit of a third soul, hopefully many more souls. Yes. Knowing it's a mutual hey. yeah. validation. Yeah, that's, that's right. Oh, a million won't do it for me anymore. You know, I got to go 50, 60 million. <laughs> Top shelf. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, but the, that idea of, of surrender, of humility. Um, you know, people misunderstand what humility is. I think, they think it's like low self-esteem uh, they say humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, right? So there's self-obsession, being sure. self-absorbed, which is not fun. It's mm. painful. Yes. And then there's self-transcendence. I rise above myself nice. or literally I get over myself. And someone's taking themselves too seriously. Get, get over yourself. It's a great idiom because get over yourself means stop taking yourself so darn seriously, but it also means literally get over, rise above. Like that ego, that's not you. That's not the real you. Rise above, connect to something higher and sort of look at life from a from a heightened perspective, from a bigger context. Yes, that's, yeah. I mean, 100%. I know when I fall into the train of thought or just like looking internally, like just looking at self, 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 I tend to excommunicate myself from people or isolate or, or start comparing. And it just becomes a lot of the I and the ego, mm-hmm. which leads to, of course, you know, it's a, a dangerous road. Right. And right. when I take the moment of time. I thank God that the creator in his infinite wisdom and kindness made that so ultimately painful for us. Yeah. It's, I mean, ultimately, that's what it is, right? When, when we get a broken bone or swelling on the foot or knee, right. it's, it's just a way of saying, hey, just take, take care, care of it. it. Take care right. of it. Exactly. So you're blaming the, you know, the knee to swell up or broke. It's like, right. take care right. of it and you'll be able to run that's again right. and take care that's of yourself. Right. So 
just being aware of that and not blaming it or being okay, I suppose, when, when you feel those, when I, when I'm trying to work on this, feeling those pains, those wake up calls, it's like, okay, what's my body? What's, what's my emotion trying to tell me right now? Lesson wise. And then flip around. I have a friend who told me, he said, there are three things that I cannot change. The past, the truth, and you. Mm -hmm. I can't change you. I can change me. It's the only one I can change. But I can't change you. So then, then, then the kicker was, he says, any time I find myself in emotional turmoil, if I will stop and be honest with myself about the source of that emotional turmoil, I will be able to clearly see that the cause is that I'm right in the middle right now of trying to change one of those three things. Either I'm in the middle of trying to change the past or I'm trying to change the truth or I'm trying to change you. And I will experience no serenity till I can let, let go of those three things and put the focus back on myself. Let go, let God. Let go, let God. Or they say, let go or get dragged. <laughs> let go, get dragged. Yeah, yeah. yeah, true. So moving forward, moving forward, what what are you um, working on? What are you, what are you passionate about? And uh, of course, we have to wrap up with that story. Oh, story yeah well what am i what am i working on just trying to get the uh, real ideas maybe i'll say a little bit about the idea of soul words soul on one hand is like you know spiritual ephemeral you know abstract mm -hmm. words especially in Hasidic teachings words are containers a word contains an idea it's a container for an idea an idea is an abstraction. An idea is not a thing. You can't touch an idea. Right? Um, so the, the, the soul is sort of the idea, the currency of the idea. But then it has this word. The word is sort of the body for the idea. And we're constantly trying to marry those two things. So we're trying to take ideas, which are essentially spiritual, put them in containers, which are in a certain way more like physical, um, in the sense that they're limited. Physicality is limitation. Um, words are limiting. You know why? Because if you say one word, you can't say them all. Mm -hmm. At least not at the same time. The same time right? Right. So you're limiting. You're making choice. Every word, you're making a choice. You're committing. Every word is a commitment. Committing to a certain direction. How I'm going to express this thought. I'm going to go down this way, not that way. Right. So that's, that's basically, you know, I'm just searching for whatever platform, whatever medium, whatever means exists to have these discussions, to talk about these deep ideas, specifically from the Hasidic tradition, um, and then putting it in plain English, accessible, relevant, yeah. Like we're terms. doing right now. Right, yeah. Like this is the, like talking like this. Yeah. This is, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what we're talking about are very deep ideas, but it's plain English. We're not using technical jargon. No, we're not, not using enough. the words of the Zohar. Correct. It's in our own words and uh, in our understandings, and we're, and, yeah. we're, and we're sharing it. Yeah, yeah. Leave us with the, with the story. The story. Okay, it's one of my favorite stories. Yeah, it's a parable, which means it's a story that never happened, but it's true. Yes. Yeah. So there's a guy, and the truth is, the way I heard it, I heard it from an AA speaker who said a guy was looking for sobriety. But when I tell the story, you should know that. 99.9% .9 of my speaking that I do have nothing to do with the recovery community. Well, yeah. I mean, oh, sure. Yeah, totally. Type of thing. It just went yeah, right. much more. So when I tell this, but I love this story. So when I'm speaking to a quote unquote regular you know, crowd, I say he's looking for happiness. Or sometimes I say he's looking for a new life. Mm -hmm. It's all the same. Right. right. Okay. So let's say he's looking for a new life. The guy 
He's totally depressed. He's totally broken, miserable. He's driving down the highway and he's looking for a new life because his current life is broken. And he, he, he utters a prayer. He says, God, I need a new life. And all of a sudden, he hears the voice of God right there in his car. God says, you're looking for a new life? You're in luck. I have a new life for you. And it's on sale today for a very reasonable price. So what's the price? Oh, so God says to him, how much do you got? He says, I have about $20 on it. God says, perfect. Price for your new life is $20. So the guy's about to hand it over. He says, oh, you know, hold on a second, God. You know, this is all the money I have on me right now. You see the fuel gauge on this car is getting low. I'm about to run out of gas. If I give you the whole $20, I will run out of gas. I won't be able to get more gas. So I have a little issue there. God says, oh, yeah, that's a good point. Price for your new life today is $20 in your car. You have a car, you know, you just mentioned you have a car. So price for your new life is $20 in, in your car. The guy says, God, if I give you my car, how will I get to work? God says, oh, that, that's a good point, too. Yeah, yeah, you work, yeah. Price for your new life today is $20, your car, and your job. He says, God, I'm giving you my job. I mean, that's how I make a living. If I don't have a job... How am I going to pay the mortgage? God says, oh, it's a good point. A mortgage means you have a house. Price for happiness, new life, sobriety, is $20, your car, your job, and your house. He says, God, if I give you my house, where are my wife and children going to live? He says, oh, excellent. Price for your new life today is $20, your car, your job, your house, your wife, your children. At this point, the guy realizes he's, he's, he's got to shut up because he's digging deeper every time. So he, at this point, he doesn't say a word. God says, okay, I'm, I'm taking these things from you now. Okay, taking your $20, taking your car, taking your job, taking your house, taking your wife, taking your children. That's it. And I'm going to give you your new life. He says, God says to the guy, he says, but before I give you your new life, just one more thing I need from you. You're okay with that? And the guy's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He doesn't want to speak. He's <laughs> right? Yeah, sure. So God says, okay, you see this $20? It's not your $20. It's my $20, God says. I, I have it, but I want you to spend it for me. But since it's not your 20, God says, it's my 20, you spend it the way I want it spent on things that I want to be bought. You see this car? It's not your car. You used to have a car just like this, but you don't anymore. It's my car, God says but I want you to drive it for me. But since it's my car, you only drive it where I want to go. Mm. You see this job? It's not your job anymore, God says. It's my job. You show up there and you do business the way I want business done. You treat people there at your workplace the way I want them treated. See, this house is not your house, but I want you to live in it. And I want you to use my house the way that a house of God should be used. You see this wife and children? They're not your wife and children. They're my wife and children, God says and I want you to treat them that way. Can you do all that for me? Guy says, mm-hmm. God says, very good. So here's your $20, here's your car, here's your job, here's your house, here's your wife, here's your children, here's your new life. What's the difference between the old life and the new life? It's the same $20, the same car, same job, same house, same wife, same children. The difference is, who's the boss? Who owns it? Where's the attention going? I show up. Everything I do is service. Not about me anymore. It's about what I can do, what I can provide, what I can give. That's surrender. 
ultimate surrender is I show up and I see what I'm needed for. Mm. Wow, wonderful. Rabbi Shays Tao, thank you so, so much for uh, joining me today on the Great Day Podcast. A real pleasure, really amazing. Uh, from, from reading about you and, and from your works and having a conversation, you're really, truly incredible and maybe blessed to continue to uh, be, have the strength and the wisdom to, to, to give over and share in your own words all that you know and, and learned uh, with myself and everybody who's listening and watching. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Really, really goes a long way through all your support by liking and subscribing to this podcast, sharing it with friends if you find any value through it. And I've been really appreciating the feedback that I've been getting from you all through the podcast platforms and through Instagram. It really goes a long way. Thank you so much for your love and support. And of course, thank you, Rabbi Chase Tab, for coming through and sharing your insights and your wisdom with us. And feel free, guys, to give this a subscribe, give it a rate, give it a like. And tune in next Monday when we launch and share the new Great Day Podcast episode. Until then, stay positive, be happy. I'm Mayor Kay and wishing you a great day.